Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today our guest is Kiese Lehman. Kiese is an author, professor, and essayist, most well-known for his memoir, Heavy. He's also the author of Long Division, a novel, and a collection of essays called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Today, we talk about vision and revision, the white gaze, and our problematic phase. If you're looking for ways to amplify the stacks and help me to continue making this podcast, here's what you can do. You can use the link in the show notes to shop for your books. You can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can use the Stacks codes with our partners. And you can follow us on social media, at the Stacks Pod on Instagram, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. If you still want to do a little more, you can join us over on Patreon. That's a monthly subscription that funds the show and gives you perks like our virtual book club. I want to give a little shout out to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, including Sarah Taylor, Tava Bingham, Laura, Megan, Drea Isasi, Olga Bielik, Melissa DeHarnay, Michelle Guthrie, Marissa Morchinsky, Lisa Bagdon, Mackenzie Carlson, and Janelle Jansen. Thank you all so much for your continued support of the Stacks. I could not do it without you. All right, let's get on to my conversation with Kiese Lehman. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Kiese Lehman. This is such a dream come true. If you guys have listened to this podcast, you probably know that Kiese is the author whose name comes up the most from other guests. I swear, Kiese, you're the person everyone wants to write the story of their life. You're the person that everyone is blown away by the great, the most recent great book they've read. You are like everyone's favorite person. So I'm really excited that you're here. Thank you so much and welcome. Thank you for having me. That's uh, that's amazing to hear. All of that was new information to me, but I'm very, 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 very thankful to be here with you. I'm so excited you're here. I am going to try really hard not to go over time because I feel like I could ask you a million bazillion questions. Um, but... I'm going to try hard to be respectful of everyone's time, including the people at home. (laughs) Um, So I guess we'll just kind of start where we always start with everybody. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, kind of like where you're from, what what you do with your days, kind of what life is like for you? Yeah. And thank you again, Tracy, for for, um, inviting me on my favorite book podcast. So Uh, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I write. Um, I read, I teach. Um, right now, I'm 
currently a professor at University of Mississippi. Um, born in Jackson, went to school in Mississippi, got kicked out of Millsaps College, went to Jackson State, gradually, eventually transferred to Oberlin College, um, went from Oberlin to IU for MFA school, went from MFA school immediately to teach at Vassar, got tenure at Vassar. I never wanted to leave school, leave Mississippi, got kicked out of school. So when I was able to come back to Mississippi, I came back. I did not come back to the part of Mississippi that I ever envisioned coming back to. Um, <laughs> I came back to a part of Mississippi I'd actually never been to, which was the northern part um, in Oxford. Um, but I'm closer to home and I always wanted to come back home on my own terms. And I'm doing some writing and reading now that I really feel confident in and like um, happy. And that's just, I never, I, I really feel happy when I'm writing, but I'm feeling hmm. happy writing right now. So that's where I am. That's beautiful. Can you tell us what you're yeah. writing about or is that a top secret information? Um, nah, you know, I, I think it's supposed to be top secret, but I, I really appreciate y'all's podcast like <laughs> so much. So I'm working on, um, I have a novel calling so on that is done-ish, but, you know, the pandemic, the movement, the moment, the revolution necessitated that I go in there and revise it. So I have a novel coming out calling so on. Um, I have another book coming out probably before that, which is like a small compact book called Good God. And I have another book coming out called um, I Don't Know What You Mean. And I have two children's books coming out hopefully in the next seven months or so. Oh, my gosh. I'm so this is it's just really refreshing to hear that the people whose words you like to read have new stuff coming out because I know it's such an annoying thing when people are like when's your next book coming like but i feel yeah. for me like i i i miss reading your words you know so it's exciting right. for me to hear that i got lots of things to read and i have new babies so we can read children's books so i get lots of things to, to read how old how old is your baby i i have twins that just came they're 6 months old this week oh I have like brand new little creatures who live in my house they're strangers in my life and there are two of them and they're identical little boys and just it's a lot. <laughs> Wait, how does how okay, I'm 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 getting in your business too much right That's now, okay. but like how does reading work with like six months old? Like do they You mean me reading to them or you mean yes. my person oh so <laughs> so I read to them um at least once a day. We do like bedtime stories and one of them, Quentin, he is like super into books. So whenever I bring a book out and I'll lay there with them and read and he'll stare at me and he'll kind of like pet my arm when I'm reading. And then Ezra is like, ah, 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 and like hates it <laughs> and is like, doesn't want to be laying down still, like not that into it. But if I like right. give them a book to like hold, they'll like eat it and play with it. And they like love touching them but Quentin yes. is like into story time and he has been since he was probably like three months he's been like into that moment where he like looks at it and listens and like loves it which is weird because I thought the same thing like how does this work why do I have to read to these people like they don't even speak any language and it's amazing how they're both of you yeah and they're so like intimately connected but it sounds like they have different personalities already already for sure a thousand percent and like in everything they have like kind of different takes on how it works so it, i think it'll be interesting because i know a lot of people if you have like kids that aren't twins you recognize their different personalities 
you know, like, oh, Jimmy didn't do this or like Karen did this. Of course, Karen. <laughs> but with them, it's like <laughs> side by side in the exact moment. Like we just gave them food for the first time this week. And Quentin was like totally into it the first day. And Ezra was like spitting it out and like screaming. And then he started going to like the get out place where he would look off to the distance. And I would have the spoon like right in front of his face. And he would not acknowledge me like totally like trying to ignore me. So strong willed, which is totally my personality. But I was like, who is this baby? It's like, these are sweet potatoes, baby. Okay. Life could be a whole lot worse, kid. It could be broccoli. That's true. <laughs> So funny. I, I love that they're eating sweet potatoes too. Like I feel that was like their first like the, food. Really? Yeah, that was the first thing I gave them. Wow. It just felt right. Yeah. That's my granny. My granny always she she did that with her kids. She grew she had this massive garden and so sweet potatoes were the first thing she gave all her children and grandchildren. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, my my family is, my dad, the side of the family is from Louisiana, so I don't know, maybe it's like a Southern thing, I don't know. Okay, let's stop talking about feeding babies, because this is allegedly not a baby feeding podcast, but it can be, <laughs> it can be if we want it to be, I guess. I want to talk to you about Heavy, and I want to talk to you about your writing. So Heavy is your memoir, it's your most recent book, I so I listened to it, I read it when it came out. And then I listened to it this week just to refresh my memory. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is revision. I feel like that's like kind of a word that comes up a lot in the book. And I think a lot of people who have read your work and know anything about you, that's a word that they kind of associate with you. I think like you're kind of the patron saint of revision at this point in writing. And so I'm curious about, obviously it plays a huge part in your writing, but I'm curious how you feel like revision plays a part kind of in your lived experience or how that interprets into like who you are as a person. Yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I'm living my best life and my most courageous life, um, I'm honestly assessing, you know, the vision of what I did yesterday or two days ago or whatever. And, and, or a few minutes ago and, and when I'm living my best, um, I'm honestly looking at that and thinking about, you know, <laughs> how it can be better, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And, 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 or like how my initial vision that I often thought was like, so innocent was probably dripping in some sort of harm. So, you know, revision for me in my life and revision for me in my work is about like the fine points of craft, but it, but it ultimately is about like the treatment, you know what I mean? Like in a paragraph, like, is this paragraph being used in the service of justice and liberation and how do you do that without making it seem didactic and i feel the same way about my life it's hard it's harder to be a good reviser in life than to be a good reviser in <laughs> in books for sure right. um because i think we all want to believe that we are doing the best we can and if you've done the best you can do sometimes it's hard to revise but i seldom do the best i can in anything um and that's a hard thing to accept but it's 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 easier to accept in writing because you know it, it, it's hard to write a perfect sentence, um, but shit, it's hard to fucking like live a perfect hour. You know, right. like, that's a much, much harder work. Right. When you're writing a book and you're working with an editor, and you're dealing, I mean, since you're someone who rigorously revises on your own, like I, I'm, from what I, everything I've read about your writing, that's part of your writing process, right? So how does it work when someone else is giving you feedback on? revising it it you know um that's a great question like 
I just truly believe that this living writing process, the living writing processes are collaborative. Do you know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. and, and even if you live alone, like I live alone. I don't have children. I live in a house across the street from William Faulkner's house by myself. Um, so I love the editorial process. Now, that doesn't mean that everything an editor suggests that I'm, you know, that I do, I'm going to do. But everything an editor suggests I'm going to hear and 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 allow it to, like, you know, inflect and impact what I do. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so very rarely do I get editors at this point in my career where I'm just like, no, I'm not going to do what <laughs> you asked me to do. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and, and an example is, you know, I just did this piece for the New York Times. Uh, it was a collaborative piece called uh, City Country, uh, no, City Summer, Country Summer. And we had these incredible photographs from Andre Wagner and they wanted me to write like a complimentary uh, piece to go along with the photographs. And so what I wanted to do was to create a contrast between the actual text, which was going to be based in like rural Mississippi, and the photographs which were all based in New York City. And what they really wanted me to do was describe the photographs. And I was mm. like, I'm not describing the photographs, fam. I'm about to create, <laughs> I'm about to create some fucking legendary art. Just like, just... Just just trust, right? And so once I showed them, and then they were like, oh, wow, we hadn't even thought about that. And then the editor came in and was like, you know, I think you probably need to take take this away and add a little bit of that. And I was like, you're absolutely right. But sometimes you just have to convince editors that your vision is 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 worthy of like their time. Because right. I think a lot of times, particularly for like daily kind of papers just want like the, the the speech you know like i want to know what ksa layman thinks but uh, that's not that interesting right like what, what i what i what i feel in art i can make might be interesting so i love the editorial process i didn't like it early in my career because editors had no fucking respect for me and they were right. just literally trying to tell me to not to just not do what i was trying to do Right. I didn't like that. Right. And you said, I mean, I this is something that maybe I should have thought about a little bit, but the word revision, of course, is vision and then the re part. And and I guess yes. how how hard is the vision part versus the re part? Or like, do you ever go into projects being like, I don't really have a vision. Let me just write some shit down and then try to try to make it fit into something. Or do you always go in thinking like, this is my vision? I mean, Again, partially because I don't have children, I live by myself. Like, I spend a lot of time thinking about like the vision of what I want to do. Like with heavy beyond all the stuff I want to do with my body and my family and addiction. Like, I really wanted to envision a memoir that I'd never seen. Right? Like, I mm. wanted to try to, I wanted to try to rewrite the American memoir canon. That's a that's a <laughs> that's a big ass thing to try to do. Right. And then I wasn't gonna stop until I had done it. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's yeah. sort of how I, 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 if in anything I've written that's successful, it's been like that. Like, for example, Oxford American asked me to write this essay on Outcast, And initially, I think they just wanted to know, again, like my thoughts on Outcast. But everybody in the mother's written about Outcast, And a lot of people have written about Outcast like brilliantly. So I was just was like, I wanted to um, connect Outcast and their freshness and their stankness to my grandmother. I'd never seen that essay. And so, like, that was the vision. But then the question is, like, how do you pull it off, you know? Um, 
So anyway, like I, I spend a lot of time thinking about vision, but I spend again because I don't have children, I'm not, you know, I live by myself. I just spend all, a lot of other time just trying to practice sentences and practice sounds and ask myself, you know, what is the smell of like agony? Like, how can you get people to feel agony through sensory details without using the word agony? You know, stupid shit like that. I, I, I like, I like doing that kind of stuff, you know. And a lot of it also has to do with. I just used to be very, very active. I used to run a lot, play a lot of basketball, and my body kind of broke down. And so all this energy that I used to have to exert physically, I just sort of use now more to exert, like in my writing. Right. In a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the energy has to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was, I was in New York with, <laughs> with a lot of dudes I, that I met when I moved here to play ball with. And then one of them was like, man... <laughs> As soon as you stop fucking with us, it's like your career took off. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, no, nah, it's not it's not that, bro. Like it's not it wasn't that at all. It's literally like I broke my fucking body. Like my legs and my hips do no longer work. So, you know, time that I was spent wishing I would have been Michael Jordan or LeBron James or fucking somebody, I was just like, I should probably try to work on what I'm good at, which is which is revision, you know, not writing. I'm I'm not that good of a writer, but I'm I'm pretty good at revision. So when you're writing these sentences, right, you're like working, like you're doing, it sounds like you kind of do like drills with your writing, right? Like it's like a form of exercise for your mind and your and your writing skills. What is that? Do you like sit down at the desk and say, okay, I'm going to just write some fucking sentences or, or are you always writing sentences in service of a piece or a book or an essay or something? Oh, nah. I mean, I'm, I, I think it's for me, it's about half and half. And, and and again, like I know writers, you know, like I mean, I could tell. I mean, you know, like like Jasmine to me, like there there are a lot of reasons in this world that Jasmine to me is like the greatest writer of of of, of my time. But I'm not good like that. Like I have to fucking like I have to write all of this shit, you know, and then put it all in the refrigerator. And then when it's time to make some shit, I'm like, okay, I got to go get out all these things that I made, as opposed to just simply. I'm writing a story. Here's the story. I'm writing an essay. Here's the essay. So a lot of times, like I have sentences that I that I know kind of like excite me. Then the question is like, how do I build like you know plot or you know some sort of logical or illogical argument around a sentence? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it, it's 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 collage making. It's like quilt. It literally is quilt making to me for the most part. Now once I once I start to get a shape of the quilt. Then I'm then I'm fucking obsessive and I and, and I zero in and and then I start trying to think about what I can break in terms of tra- in terms of tradition. But I just spend a lot of time just just like creating sentences or scenes or or listening to things and then and then trying to put them in service of a piece down the road. And once I once I get that once I once I once I really get the vision though, then I'm then I'm then I'm sort of obsessive about it. But it takes like, 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 for example, like this New York Times piece I wrote, like I just became obsessed with like this idea of these little black kids playing Marco Polo in this humongous ass garden in um, in rural Mississippi. Like, you know, like Marco Polo, people used to play in the pool. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, some of these gardens, Mississippi, where I grew up, my, my, my grandmama's garden, she shared with her best friend, my godmother. This shit was fucking huge. It was just like humongous. And we would play all in there and just get lost. And then I was like, oh, like what, like what, like can you, can you make a believable scene of little black kids playing Marco Polo 
in between fucking corn and okra and butter beans and shit like that. And so when it came to me with this assignment, it gave me an opportunity to try to make that scene work when initially I didn't know where it would go. It's just something that I kept sort of obsessing on. Hmm. That's so interesting. The way that you talk about your writing and the way that you write about your writing is not, is unlike other people that I've had on the show. And I, every time I read you write talking, reading, well, (laughs) every time I read you (laughs) writing about your writing, I am always really interested in this idea. I I use the phrase professional writer. It's what I call people who I'm like, (laughs) this person's really thought about writing. Like they didn't just write the story, like they're a professional writer, you know? And so I always think that about you. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the ways that you are thinking about doing that work. I think I would be crazy remiss to have you on the podcast and not talk a little bit about the Black Artists for Freedom that you were a part of. Um, I thought that was, you guys released this incredible statement on Juneteenth and it was um, kind of a call for respect essentially and to be seen and to be heard and to be valued. So I'm curious a little bit about how that came to be and how you came to be a part of it. Yeah, you know, and again, because I I mean, I respect you and respect this podcast so much. Like the real, I, I give you the real, the real story is that um, one, late one night, um, there was a story that gone out on Twitter that a 13-year-old boy had been shot in New York mm. and uh, by the police. And, they, and, 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 and at that point, the rumor was they they shot this shot this boy like you know eight times or something like that. Um, come to find out, it wasn't a thirteen year old boy. Um, it was a, a a black man who reportedly had shot someone else, and the police shot him. To me, like <laughs> way more times than you should shoot a human being. But Lisa Lucas and I happened to be watching Twitter at the same time. She was on the West Coast. I was in Mississippi. And Lisa Lucas, who was the head of the National Book Foundation, and I are really great friends from way back in the day when we were both struggling. And she hit me, and she was um, she was she was really, really, really. Um, I mean, she was really affected by what she just read and and what had been happening all through the day. And 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 at one point, we you know, Lisa said like, you know, I'm fucking running the National Book Foundation. You know, we're writing these books. We're blah 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 blah. But it doesn't help. Like people are still getting terrorized like what do we do and then you know Lisa Lucas is a magician and then so you know we were just like shit let's just try to get all the folks we know and this writing shit together and then you know some folks we know on television together and let's get together and see what we can do collectively um and that's really how it started and then the next day we got on a call probably with like 13 people and then the next day that we got on you know that that 13 people turned into 30 and then the next day that 30 mm-hmm. turned into like 60 and and thankfully, we also were working with a lot of organizers on the ground, you know, Charlene Carruthers, Dar- Darnell Moore, people who have been like very intricately um, involved in the movement for black lives. And so it wasn't just like, you know, the question was like, are we just going to get on here and try to advocate for like more money and bigger advances and shit like that? And I was like, well, that's not what we want to do. But we also do want to talk about the way culture impacts the way people understand interactions with human beings. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And so came up with this like big joint statement and we came up with this literary quilt and we came up with these demands that I think have a lot of teeth. And much more importantly, like we all for the first time got together and we let each other know 
like we we ha- we gonna have each other's back. We're gonna disagree, and there's gonna be a lot of backstory to a lot of our relationships. But from this point going forward, we need to double down on loving each other and being in the service of justice, you know, particularly for black folks and black artists. And then particularly, particularly for black trans folks who are just getting like destroyed in every which way. So it all really just started out with Lisa Lucas hearing another black life had been destroyed, reaching Mm -hmm. out to me emotively saying what the fuck do we do and me saying shit i don't know let's get some other people online and just see and that's how it started wow that's incredible yeah in this moment that apparently white people are deciding that they're just hearing about racism for the first time right right? like (laughs) which i mean blows my mind like it's like you're you just got here like weren't you wasn't everybody tuned into roots in the 70s like how did you just get here But in this moment, like, what does it mean to you or what does it feel like for your books to be being sold out and to be on these all these lists and to be like a voice that people are looking to? And I guess part two of that question would be, and what does it mean to you to know that a lot of the work that I know that you said that you do for black people and about black people is being consumed by so many white people who admittedly don't get it, you know, or are trying to quote, do better or learn or whatever. So what does that feel like for your words to be part of this thing, but kind of going into a place that you really can't control and you don't know that your audience is necessarily reading you with the, with the understanding of what your words mean and where they're coming from. Yo, that is like, the best question ever <laughs> um, because you can't run away from it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can, but I'm not gonna, I mean, I'll start with the hard part. It feels some, 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 some parts of it. Ooh, this is my, it's not going to, this is not, this is just the truth. Some parts of it feel a little icky. You know I, what I mean? I like feel some that. Parts, some, yeah. Some parts of it, and and I want to be respectful in my answer. You know, um, I wrote a book directly addressed to my mother because we seldom see books directly addressed to black women who grew up in central Mississippi, you know, raised by incredible mothers who moved to Jackson. That That was that moving to Jackson was like seen as just like making it. And then eventually my mother, you know, gets a Ph.D. at University at uh, University of Wisconsin and she comes back to Jackson because of her love for Mississippi. And she eventually doesn't make any money, but she travels around the world really thinking about, like, blueprints for justice, right? I wanted, I wanted a book. And in the meantime, she's trying to raise a kid who she had at 19. Mm. I wanted that person to be the center of my book. And our relationship is, is the God. Like, I'm the I, she's the you, but the relationship is the God. So... In that in that book, I'm critiquing like, you know, like these white gazes and how we can get mesmerized by the white gazes and whatnot. So I didn't write that book to educate one white person on Earth. Like, you know what I mean? No disrespect to the people who do the how to's and, the, you know, here's how you can change white people books. I got you. I understand the importance of those books. I understand the utility of those books in the 50s and the 40s and the 30s and the 60s. That's not what I wrote. So. I'm grateful and thankful that I could write a book that that has resonance because, again, I am writing at the end of the day about like parental relationships with children, our relationships with the nation, our relationships with our body. 
our relationships with joy and shame, right? That shit is some shit every person in the world has some relationship to. Right. But I didn't write a how-to. And I think some of these people are coming to these texts, like, trying to learn how to be better white people. And I get it. Like, you might get that from heavy. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that's some shit you can get. But that is the exact opposite of what I was trying to do. Hmm. I was trying to be like, what happens when we stop? Because I spent my college years doing that, trying to correct white people, trying to get white people to see themselves in the hopes that if they see themselves with enough acuity, they would then stop being so, like, stop doubling down on suffering of other folks. Mm. But that shit got me kicked out of school. That shit fucked up my soul. You know, there's a history of us writing to white folks. So that's not at all what I was trying to do with Heavy. I'm very thankful anytime any people engage with that book. You know what I'm saying? I'm very thankful. But if you come into that book, for how to, or now I know what black people feel. Nah, that ain't what I wrote that shit for. And, 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 uh, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking the people who actually did write their books because they want to make white people less racist, you know, like got to do it. We need that work. That's some, that's some, that's some century old work, but shit, I'm a fucking artist, bro. Like I'm not, I'm not, and I have, and I have, and I have a responsibility but my art would be shit if my responsibility was to like educate white people who didn't listen to James Baldwin. Cause you know right. what? None of us writing these books are going to be able to write them shits better than James Baldwin. You right. know what I'm saying? Who spent his career begging white people to stop being so fucked up. Right. And so heavy is in some way, like an attempt to be like, I love James Baldwin. There would be no me without Baldwin, but the part of him that was obsessed with like trying to get white liberals to change, that's not what I'm doing. So to see my book on these lists, sometimes I'm like, you know, <sighs> sometimes I'm like, one of those books don't look like the other book. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, damn, like, how come with all this dope ass lush black art? Sometimes I'm like, why does it really seem that they're obsessed with like black? Sometimes it seems like black men like coming of age or yeah. You know, dealing. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this right now. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful that those books are out there educating. I mean, to pivot, one, th- one thing that I think we see is that white people, including wealthy white people, are acknowledging that their wealthy educations, in some way, were not worth shit. Right. You know what I'm saying? Other than like transporting them into portals of like power that they do or do not deserve, but. I think we just got to rethink about rethink education, because if the best educations in this world are leading 45 year old, 55 year old, 13 year old, like wonderfully, quote unquote, educated white people to really need to read books to tell them what it means to be white after fucking the best of our artists spent way too much of our time doing that. Their education. Right. (laughs) And our conception best need to be obliterated. And I was trying to do that in heavy. So anyway, I feel thankful, but I also feel a little icky sometimes when I see those my books on those lists. And I know my publishers and editors are going to be mad I said that shit, but that's what I feel. So Well, I, I definitely understand that. I mean, I put together a list and your book is on there, but my list that I put I together, <laughs> I put together a list of like all sorts of different nonfiction because that's what I like to read. Um, and I, you know, I purposefully made the choice to include 
memoirs alongside books like how to be anti-racist or like books like white fragility you know and i included books by authors who weren't just black because i think that's important i know a lot of people are super anti-white fragility right now because it's written by a white woman but for me i'm like look we can't do it all we can't be expected to do all the educating of you and if you're only reading one book and the only book you're picking up about racism is white fragility then you're doing it wrong anyways you know <laughs> like like if you're like this book's by a white person i can't believe you tell me to read it it's like look i've read hundreds of books by white people i've also read hundreds of books by black people if you're only reading right. one book you're this is a bad faith argument leave me alone <laughs> you know like and that white fragility that book in that title it just like you know, I've I've been in situations in the past three years since I moved back to Mississippi where people would say things to me and I'd be like, man, that's that white fragility. Mm-hmm. And every time the person who heard that shit started crying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's unbelievable. Way, you you would have think I called him a motherfucker. All, all I said was like, I was like, oh shit, this is that white fragility. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm like, I'm like, this is that white fragility. You know, so. Yeah, I feel you on that. <laughs> that book, I look, I get it. I understand. I understand the argument against it, right? Like I'm I've done a lot of the reading. Like I understand it. Like Lauren um fuck, what's her name? She wrote White Negroes. Lauren John Jack Michelle Jackson, Johnson, Jackson. She wrote an incredible article about the book, which I devoured and I thought was amazing. But I also still think the book has a lot of value, you know, and I think that's the case for a lot of this stuff. Like none of it should be taken as one as one standalone thing. You know, I had Ibram Kendi on this podcast and I asked him flat out, what's a book that you think we should be reading about anti-racism to continue our work? And this was back in September. And he was like, if you're white, you should read White Fragility. And look, I'm not going to be the person to argue with Ibram Kendi about race in America. (laughs) Like, if you want to pick that fight with me, great. But I'm just going to refer, I'm just going to share a link with you of Ibram Kendi saying to my face, like, you know, so... Um, but I did put you on that list, but I put a lot of things on that list that are books that aren't on other lists too. But I just, it, the reason I asked the question is because I remember when um, Between the World and Me got real famous, right? And ta Coates was talking about how he was really grappling with why do white people like my book, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's and, such an interesting question. And that was tough. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I again, like, because I respect you so much, you know, um, I think there was just too much weight put on 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 that book, and and so like as someone who like knew Tanahasi before the book came out, I think I've said this to him. I said this to him a few weeks ago. I think, I mean, every book that comes out like needs to be intellectually and artistically like reckoned with, right? Like we need to critique. Like people need to talk. People who love you need to be like. This is dope, but like maybe you could have done some other stuff here. And I said to Tanahasi, you know, if you're gonna write a book to your son, I think you need to talk to your son about cis heteropatriarchy and how and and how he is going to be encouraged to police certain bodies. I was mm. straight up flat out about that from the rip. But what I also think, and I can own this, is like we had just never seen like that cadre of writers had never seen white folks gobble up something so much. And because there's so much distrust of white folks, I think within like our us as general black folks, definitely like black artists, we were just like, wait a minute, something must be fucked up about this book. Cause white people are gobbling right. it up. You know right. what I'm and I, instead of focusing that shit on, on the, on the, on the consumers, I think some of what you heard in addition to like critiques, that I think people could substantiate was like some people I think 
who could, you know, you can't go after like this white homogenous mass of people buying a book. So I think some people went after went after Ta-Nehisi in ways that I can say for myself, some of the ways were not fair. Yeah. You know, one, because that shit is like crazy making to be, you know, fucking an incredible journalist to become literally the most influential writer in the fucking world. Like right. for a while, you know, right. like, like, like imagine how that per- person must feel. Right. And I just think a lot of us didn't do the, a lot of us who cared about him or again, I can just own this, didn't do the work to think about what the fuck it must feel like to be like a nigga who can walk down the street in New York to motherfucker who is now being like burdened with carrying the fucking race via a book. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's really complicated. It's super complicated. But, but what I want to say is like, it's interesting too to me in this moment where we're fighting and we're struggling and we're connecting how you rarely see like books that are about like fortifying us internally. Like what are, mm. like we're, we're, we're the blacklist of books that like can help us get through the moment. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like right. books that can like make us feel like we going to do this. We can do where where the, where the, where, where the art, where's the art? And maybe you can argue that the books and the art and these lists that like mostly white folks are making are those books, but I don't think so because what's missing from those, those lists often is like poetry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I know po- the you know particularly like black, brown, and 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 and, and fucking trans poets of of all races are just doing incredible work right now too. So anyway, you got me hype. I'm talking too much, but I, I I'm just really curious about the list, and I think. Um, Lauren Jackson really made clear some of the stuff we should be talking about about those lists. Yeah, you know. she's incredible. Holy cow! Ooh, she, 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 she's she is no joke. That book, White no. Negroes. I I listened to it on audio. She doesn't read it. I wish she did. But I'm thinking to myself, how is this book not everywhere? Like, Every- talk about black people knowing white people better than they know themselves. Like, yes. man, she's incredible. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're going to transition a little bit because I do want to get to all the books that you love and stuff. And we will have plenty of time to talk more about this next week when we talk about Breathe uh, because that is basically more of the same kind of of this moment. So uh, we'll, we have time. But one of the things we do every episode with a guest, we do this thing called Ask the Stacks where someone has emailed me asking for a book recommendation. And I'm gonna, you haven't heard this yet. So I'm going to read it to you and then you're going to give me your recommendations. But I'm going to say this one that I got is not a normal one. They didn't really ask for a recommendation. They kind of asked an open-ended question. And I it just came through last night. And so I, I changed it to do this one. Um, the question kind of threw me for a loop and kind of made me feel weird a little bit. And then I thought maybe we should talk about this for a second. So, so this isn't normal, but it just, you seem like the exact right person to do this with. So I said, fuck it, let's break the form. So here's what the person said. Their name's Alex. And they said, I have a long list of nonfiction to help equip me fight my, me to fight against racism in both myself and the world around me. I wonder, though, if it is better to focus on fiction by Black authors featuring Black stories. I know this is not a real either-or situation, as I can and will read both. But I'm asking how you think fiction also contributes to the battle of anti-racism. I'll kind of start so you can think a little bit. I think, Alex, and I don't mean this to be like tongue-in-cheek necessarily, but... The truth of the matter is we all grew up going to white schools for the most part. Even if you went to a historically black college, that is framed against historically white or, you know, predominantly white institutions. Um, and we all had to read fiction and nonfiction by white authors. And we all understood that the white fiction that we were reading was saying something about allegedly culture at large, not specifically white culture, but that's really what it was talking about. And so I think this question is, you know, I think you're kind of missing the point We're you're being told to read nonfiction and fiction and poetry and essays and whatever by black people, because all of that fortifies your understanding of the black experience. And so the yeah. reason, so it isn't an either or, but the reason the, but fiction does contribute to anti-racism because it contributes to the ways in which you're seeing people. And I can say that as someone when I read fiction, and I don't love fiction, but when I read fiction by, you know, Korean authors, I'm overcome by my 
my newfound understanding of what it means to be Korean or what it means to to be Asian in America or, you know, like a book like Pachinko, like learning about Korean and Japanese relations. Like it, I'm still learning something, even though the writing's incredible and the storytelling is phenomenal, like the art and the experience are in it just like they are in Steinbeck or fucking yep. The Great Gatsby. Like it's all in there. Okay. So this question almost kind of misses the point of art to me, right? Like your question is really like, is art valuable? And my answer is going to be like a thousand percent. That being said, some books that I would suggest you check out. I mean, Toni Morrison, sure you're familiar with her. Like Beloved is such a great example of a book that is both history and art, right? And like, I don't even understand that book. And please go listen to the episode where Damaris Hill just like <laughs> blows the book up on the show. And I'm sitting there looking at her being like, uh-huh. What did you think of the characters? And she's like, let me read from Paradise Lost. Like, I don't know. So that's one that I suggest. One that I feel like people don't really talk about anymore that I thought was so great was The Sellout by Paul Beatty. Mm-hmm. That satire. It's like different. It's not about just about being black. It's about like imagining a different world of blackness. And so that one's great. And then also Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. It's an incredible short story collection. She just like, it's just basically the subtitle of the book should be Blackness is not a monolith. Like every story is different. Every person in every story is different and weird and fucked up and cool and like troubled and not and joyful. And like that to me is what it means to be black. Like that collection is like, black you know so those are the things i would suggest you check out alex but to answer the question read black authors because black art is important period and i just you know i'm so glad you brought up nafisa because somehow some way i just think we've forgotten the value of the short story Mm. you know what i'm saying and and you know zz packer nafisa Danielle Evans, those are three incredible short story writers. Um, I would add also, oh my God, the seven, the Secret Lives of Church Ladies, incredible books about to come out. Um, short stories. I don't know if if y'all. I mean, I'm sure people haven't read it because it it, it it literally is just about to come out. But I think like we're we're in this place where people, it's like they don't appreciate the artistry of nonfiction. And then right. they assume sometimes that that fiction cannot teach them right <laughs> as as if art's only purpose is to teach, but like you can be so fortified through fiction, and the thing about it is a memoir is a memoir is like you have to learn fucking fictive technique to tell a fucking good memoir right. like you just have to right like the characters and the scenes and the pacing and all that the same shit. I'm not saying it's the same writing, but the same kind of writing. Right. Um, the same kind of tools are necessary, um, except, I mean, and you have to do a lot of, I mean, fiction writing now. I mean, shit, if you're going to do fiction writing any justice, you're going to have to do a lot of research. And you're going to probably have to do a lot of reportage, you know, and you definitely have to do that for memoir. So anyway, uh, Nafisa's book, I teach that shit religiously. Um Daniel Evans, uh, ZZ Packer, what was it? Uh, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Um, uh, this new one that I, I can't wait to teach the secret lives of church ladies. So yeah, like the, the fiction is, is important. And, and 
And Morrison, you know, I wrote my first book, Long Division, was because I was like, I was obsessed with the idea, but also I was just like, I feel like people where I'm from need something to get them to Invisible Man and Beloved. Because mm. those, those motherfuckers are hard yeah. if you just jumping into yeah. them. You know what I'm saying? Those are some hard-ass books to, like, make sense of. And I just felt like we didn't have enough books that were sort of in that tradition that kind of could be primers. So anyway, I think short story. my point is I think short stories can also be primers for the understanding of, like, novelistic exploration. And I wish people would spend more time on, on short story. And look look both ways by, by Jason Reynolds. Like, Jason Reynolds uh-huh. has done, you know, I, you know, my, my relationship with Jason Reynolds is so interesting, and we can talk about that or not. But look both ways, to me, was... A cl- is a classic and really it's a bunch of fucking interlocked short stories right that like, book is incredible it is it's, so it's good i cried me too i was moved and i'm like and i don't normally make it a practice to read young people's books now i started because of jason and you know he mm-hmm. came on this podcast and like he's the person he was one of the people who said that he wanted you to write his book just so you know. So if you're ever going to write a oh, book about a real person, Jason, Jason is interested. <laughs> but, love to do that. Would yeah. love to do that. Yeah. He said, because you, because you love black people. And he said, you'd make it unapologetically black. That's what he said. Yeah. I was on a Zoom with Jason the other day. And you know how Jason wears all black all yeah. the time? Yeah. His whole thing is all black. And he had on a black, I call it muscle shirt. He was like, it's a tank top. And I was like, damn, bro, even your muscle shirts are black. <laughs> and then he was like, what you want me to do? Be like you, be in my own house wearing a fucking hoodie and a fucking hat. And I was just like, who shag? Got you, <laughs> you <Yeah>. win. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, look both ways is incredible. The second story, the low cuts one about the that one, I low cuts. that oh. story is incredible. I cried so hard. But what he does, and this is a great kind of like way to talk about this question, is what he does is he presents these kids, right? And he gives these kids so much depth and humanity without ever once being like, this kid is a foster child, right? Like he's not performative. Exactly. He he kind of like drops these hints. And then all of a sudden you're like, yo, this kid is dealing with so much shit right now, but he's so cute. Like this kid is so cute and like so smart and so funny. And it's really like what it means to be human. Right. Is that you could be dealing with all this shit. You know, you could you could be a foster kid. You could have an abusive family member. Your sibling could die, whatever. You could have all this like heaviness and still be hella fun and going to get Mr. Softy. Right. And like Jason does that in a way that is so he like boils it down so that kids can understand it, which like that's so hard. Like he's such a talent and it's bullshit that young people authors don't get that same respect because what he's doing is wild i mean there's so many ways to talk about jason reynolds to me but if i had to like just distill it i feel like jason is just like the master of writing through the intersections of vengeance fear Hmm. and like you know we used to call it um what do we used to call it uh like keeping up with the Joneses, like you know, mm. like trying trying to follow the crowd, right? But I just think I think in almost everything that you, you, you that he's done, you see, in addition to just the lush language, you see characters that are like, you know, yeah, like these characters that are cute and whatever, you know, they can still want to go get somebody, and they're running from people, but right. they're also like so linked to like specific place, and like the idiom of the place becomes its own character, 
Yeah, Jason's 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 doing it. We met a long time ago. I was doing a reading in a barbershop. It was a hotel barbershop in fucking some part of Brooklyn. Hmm. And he came up to me. He was like, yo, I got this book. I wonder if you could read it and think about blurbing it. And then I read that shit. This was before, like, you know, he'd come out with anything. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, you read something, you're just like, how am I ever going to write again? And that was his first book. <laughs> anyway, and look both ways. You could, he, 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 I think that was, I think that's, I think that's his most masterful creation. Um, so anyway, yeah, I love Jason Richardson. Yeah, this, this J- is Jason a, Reynolds. This I'm is about basketball. Uh, <laughs> This is a Jason Reynolds fan podcast sometimes. Okay, let's talk about the books that you that you read and that you love. We always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Uh, all right, so two books I love. Gorilla My Love um, is a book that I absolutely adore by Tony K. Bambara. Uh, I, I just would just dare people to read the first sentence of that book and not read the rest of it. Um, another book that I love... Um, and because we're going to talk about breathe some other point, I'll talk about Prophets of the Hood. Prof, you know, there was like this like proliferation of hip hop books that came out like late 90s, all kind of all through the early 2000s. And I think everybody who loved hip hop and sort of loved words but couldn't rap or didn't rap were trying to write like hip hop books that meant something. And most of those books had some interesting chapters, but as a whole, like they didn't really hold together. Prophets of the Hood was the first book I read that like really like explain to me why I fell in love with hip hop, but also located it in in a in a kind of like southern locale, which is something mm. I hadn't seen done. But it also I just this is what I always say. It it gave me the language for craft. Like she you know, she's she's talking about reunion. She's talking about secular shit. She's talking about fucking like, you know, the importance and, and like the propellant power of alliteration. Mm. She's talking about commerce and all these other like ideas. She's talking about philosophy, but it's really like a craft, craft book. So Imani in that book helped me understand like the artistry of why I loved hip hop so much. So those are two books that that just like I'm gonna die loving, and mm. I always not teach more than any other books. Uh, I love a lot of books though, but those are the two that come to mind. Easy. Okay. A book I hate. Oh man, I don't mean y'all ask this question. I'm always like, wow. I don't love Red Badge of Courage. I don't love that book. I hate it. I kinda hate it. Okay. That book that book also has a history for you in your education. Yeah, yeah. I can't (laughs) I can't I can't I mean and fucked up thing about it is before I got kicked out of school for, for 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 taking that book out of the library without checking it out. I didn't like it when I read it in, in school. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I did, I didn't like that. That's the I. I mean, I've never talked about that part of it because I try not to like diss authors and shit. Because I, I mean, it's also a book that it also does some things like amazingly well. Um, and you know, when when you when you hate books that you were taught in high school, sometimes I wonder if it's like you hate the book or you hate the teacher who taught you the book. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I don't love Red Badge of Courage. Okay. I just put it like. That's fair. Um, what is the last really great book you read? Oh, shit. The last really great book I read was the, this book called The Prophets coming out by Robert Jones. I read it not long ago at all. And, and we have not read that book. And, 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 and that's all I'll say. It, it, it is 
astounding. It's a, it's an astounding novel, and it's an astounding first novel, and he's doing things with like really like slavery, afterlife, carcerality, and queerness, and like community building and community community destruction that I've just and ultimately like he really is like redefining love mm. in a way that I never thought was possible because everybody writes about love. So The Prophets by Robert Jones is is it's that book. It's that scary book that I think people are going to read and be like, oh, I, I had no idea people could do this. How do you decide what book you're going to pick up to read next? You know, a lot of people send me books because they want me to blurb them. So mm-hmm. right now, like, my readerly sort of like cue or whatever is dictated by the books people ask me to blurb. Okay. And I don't blurb a book if I don't feel it, but there but there's there's just some there's just some amazing books coming out, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I have a, a, a ex student named Shruti Swami. Um I wanna make sure I get the title of, of the book right because she just wrote a book that like mm-hmm. I didn't think was was writable. And and it's another one of those books that's just going to make everybody jealous. It's called A House is a Body, Short Stories. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> that, that book is... I mean, people are getting better, yo. People are just getting better at this writing. So A House is a Body is coming out soon. Um, and that, that that's a book that I think people should really pick up. And, yeah, yeah I want, and I want to talk about... I mean, I have some some grad students that are writing some books that are coming out that maybe we can talk about like a year from now. But okay. but of the ones that are definitely coming out now, those are those are the two that hit me hardest. I'm gonna make you come back in a year. Just be like, you said you would talk to me about this. <laughs> oh, anytime, yo. I love your podcast. Y'all ask like, don't you don't ask bullshit questions, and you like you get to it. You know what I mean? You make us talk about things we're not used to talking about. And that's hard for people who will talk about books all the time. Well, I appreciate that. That's basically my mission statement is to make people talk about things they don't normally talk about. So I appreciate that. Okay. I'm very curious about this. What is the last really good book that someone else recommended to you? Someone was like, Kiese, this is the one you need to read. The last great book that somebody recommended I read... Let me look and see. I, I was trying to think about that question a lot. Oh, it was June Jordan. It was by June Jordan, someone who I think we do not spend enough time thinking about. And uh, I get titles really confused. So, And the title of it was Directed by Desire. It, it's like this compilation almost of all of, of all of her poetry. And like that's the kind of book like that this – movement slash moment really needs to fuel because i've read june jordan but i never read like all of her shit like in one in one thing and you know june jordan is you know she's 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 writing through desire she's writing through like like what i would what i would consider like like insecure and secure vengeance and she's just like fucking amazing and like her i would i would love to have seen a conversation with june jordan and audrey lord just to be like Mm. what the fuck what what would they say to each other so um directed by desire is is a is a is a book somebody told me to pick up i picked up and i was just like fuck how did i never how have i never read this wow when you're um reading what is your ideal reading situation like where are you what do you have going on do you have snacks do you have beverages are you tell us about that (laughs) that's a good question okay so 
I like to read three places. I like to read like on my back, like on a couch, like with my head on a thing, just reading. I like to read at this desk at uh, the house I live in at Oxford, surrounded by plants Mm. and other books. And I I, I don't like to fly. Do I have to fly a lot? So like, you know, I, I try to drive if I have to drive places. And so I just recently got into listening to audiobooks and I like it, fam. Like, I don't mm. know. I know a lot of my great friends are supposed to, we're always supposed to be dissing audiobooks and shit, but a good audiobook mm-hmm. is, I don't know if there's anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, a good audiobook. So, listening to books in my car, sitting at my desk in my house in Oxford and, and reading on my back on my couch or like where I like to read the most. Are you, you're a sports person, right? Yeah, I'm kind of kind of way, way, way into sports. Okay, Are you? Me too. Yes, I'm a huge sports fan. But so one of the best audiobooks I've listened to in a long time is Andre Iguodala's book, The Sixth Man. You yes. have to have you listened to it? Oh, I got it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Isn't it so good? <laughs> it's amazingly good, family. It and it pushes you. Yeah, because you. Yeah, it that book pushed me because I read like every, you know, I read. Uh, I read all the books. Like I read, you know, I read the Gucci Mane autobiography. Right, right. And I read, you know, Iguodala and I read the Kobe books. And I, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the Lisa Leslie book. But that one had a kind of depth that yes. I'm just going to say I just didn't expect. And that's not a diss. And really it's a diss of me from from my expectations. But that that shit is just good. It's just a good book. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I'm from Oakland, so I've been a Warriors fan my whole life. So my brother uh-huh. had listened to it and he was like, oh, you should listen. And I was like, Brady, I, I have a book podcast. What am I going to, what am I going to get out of Andre Iguodala's <laughs> memoir? Like I was being such a bitch about it. And then I start listening and I'm like, and I love Andre Iguodala. Like I'm a huge, like he's like one of my favorite warriors. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever, I'll do it. And then I'm listening and I'm like, this book is so incredible. And he did such a good job of being like, I'm going to give you a little medicine with all this sports stuff, right? Like he was like, this is a racist system in the sports world. And this coach was like, teach, treating me like a little boy and like all this yeah. stuff. And then the guy who reads the book does such a good job. The like, I can't remember his name. I looked him up to try to find other books. Yeah, it's so good. I was happy to see it was on Obama's list this past summer or whatever. He included it. Yeah. And I was like, that's so dope because it is that good. And it didn't get nearly enough love from the people in the book circles that I'm in because I think you kind of like have to sort of at least know who Andre Iguodala is because otherwise, like, why would you pick it up? But so it's good. It's tough when you're dealing with those sort of sports personalities whose voices are familiar, but then you, when you hear their book, it's not in their voice. You know, like, so for me, like, there's always just a strain. I'm always like, wait a minute. Like, why didn't so-and-so write, you know, read this book? But that shit is, that shit is, that's just like an incredible book. Like yeah. just regardless of whether it's a sports person or whatever, like that book is dope. I, I wish more people would, would read or listen to that book. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. What's the last book you read that made you laugh? Okay, the answer to that question is complicated, but have you read Memorial Drive yet by Natasha? No, Shethway? no, it, but I they did send it yeah. to me after you suggested it. Yeah, it's coming out um soon. And um I had to review it for the Times. 
and 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 once your listeners <laughs> read that book, they're gonna be like, "This motherfucker here say is sick," <laughs> but yo, there are some funny ass lines in that book, and I think it's so important that we highlight the humor in that book because of what everybody's gonna be talking about when it comes out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the book is about N- Natasha Trethewey finding her mother dead at the hands of her stepfather when she was nineteen. Mm. And 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 how life before and after entering that apartment complex changed for her. I mean, brutal, tough, every word you can imagine. But yo, when she starts talking about some of the stuff that the kids said to each other and that she said that, you know, like some of those lines, I was I was dying. It's a funny. It, I mean, there are parts of that book that are like the funniest shit I've ever ever read, and it it, li- it literally is the hardest book that I could ever imagine writing. I could never fucking ever write a book like that because of how hard. You know, y'all will see if you read it, but it's funny too, and I hope people open up themselves for that possibility. It's some real funny shit in there, but you know, it's like the Yellow House. Like Yellow House, people don't talk about as being a funny book, but. You know, I think anytime you party, what your job is, is like really trying to get the kernel of like interaction between people, mm. especially black people. You know, we yeah. be saying some fucking like crazy shit yeah. to each other, right? Yeah. And sometimes, and the funniest shit about it is like it ain't even crazy. You know, these are like, I thought the Yellow House was funny as fuck. In addition to being like one of the most like ambitious, breathtaking books I read, I just thought it was funny. I said you know? the same thing when listening to your book this time listening instead of reading it i was laughing and i was like i don't remember even like smiling when i was reading this the first time but like there that means the world of me being black is a mix of being you know treated like shit a lot and also being the funniest most creative people on the face of the earth yeah. like i mean i hate to say yeah. it but like we're funny as shit and like we can find the like cur- the kernels of just like this is the worst day of my life and also like what are those? <laughs> That's exactly what I feel, fam. And like, so sometimes when I when I read these reviews are heavy, and they talk about that shit, like this is not a diss of 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 push or precious, but but that is not that I didn't write that book. Like right. my book, right? In order to write my book, I had to I had to sort of linger in in moments that are funny. You know what I'm saying? And like, but the point is to sometimes make people make a decision with what they're going to do with their bodies. So like when I'm, yeah, I'm writing about a woman who's, you know, 22 year old woman, you know, molesting me when I'm eight or nine or 10 or whatever. And that shit is fucked up and foul. But it's also funny when I'm like, she tried to put her breast in my mouth, but I didn't want her her breast to be smelling like whatever the fuck I just eat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that to me is how I get through that scene. Right. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, there's a lot of funny shit in my book yeah. to me, but you can't you can't make people laugh unless they want to. That's so. true. What's the last book that made you cry? Memorial Drive. Okay. Sob. Yeah. Sob. I don't know, fam. I'm 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 excited to see what people think about and feel about that book. You know, it, it's a uh, there's a lot going on in that book, and she's and she's a poet, so there's a lot going on in every line of that book. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was I was I was very I was very much crying before that though. You know what I reread the other day? I reread, uh, well, like a week ago, two weeks, three weeks ago, I read The Street by Ann Petrie. Mm. Um, and that book, it made me cry. It, it, that, that, that actually might be one of the first books that I really fell in love with. Um, 
and I reread it the other day and just I just cried thinking about um thinking about Bub, if you've read that book, like the little boy and his relationship with his mom and hmm. I, I cried. I cried a lot <laughs> reading that book. What about the yeah. last book that made you angry? Ooh. So I'm gonna tell on myself, but like somebody sent me that John Bolton book. Oh that new shit mm-hmm. that came out. Mm-hmm. Those books make me really angry, so fam. Like I, I, I just, I just, you know, and 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 they're not the same book, but you know, these people who sold their bodies and their hearts and their minds for Donald Trump, and then all of a sudden he treats them the way he treats humans, and then they want to write a book about how fucked up he treated them. Right. Get the fuck out of here! Right. You kidding me, bro? Like. And, 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 you know, and the dual trail, you know, gets like two or $3 million for a book that's written in like six, you know, what, three or four months. So it's like on one hand, yeah, like, you know, we need all the ammunition we can to get this fucking fascist out of office. But the hustle is so hollow. Right. You know, like, I, I and, and I'm a, and I'm the kind of person, like, I just like to read and complete shit. So I read all, I read the entire book and I'm just like, that shit is bullshit, bro. Like, I don't. I don't give a fuck about anything you're saying because you could have stopped this. You could have been so much more powerful if you stood up and you said any of this. Right. Like when you were in office. So the same way about Omarosa's book. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Don't fucking come talking all that bullshit to us now when we told you we knew you just didn't give a fuck about yourself or black folks around you. Like I, those books make me so, so, so angry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And memoir. Like when memoirs like force that like happy happily ever after feeling at the end, I'm not gonna name memoirs, but like I I kind of get angry with that. You know what I mean? Like uh, I kind of get angry when I read those kind of books. Yeah, I feel that. Are there any books that you're embarrassed that you've never read? That is a good question, fam. Okay, so I started trying to read. Was it Othello mm. this summer? Mm-hmm. We were trying to read it together, and I'd never read Othello. I've seen Othello, you know, I've seen plays, I've seen the, you know, different movie versions, but I never read it. And we only got through like six pages of it. I didn't finish it. Really? And I'm embarrassed. Oh, yeah, I'm very, yeah. That's one of my favorite Shakespeare. Act four is incredible. It is it like I, it, it was during pandemic. It was during pandemic, and we were like, uh, we, we we're gonna read it together, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, we stopped. Ugh, I love Othello. It's I I read it a few years ago in anticipation of an episode where we read a modern retelling that was terrible, but I it inspired me to go back and read all of Shakespeare's plays. So I've been reading one a month for the last like two almost two years now, wow. but I haven't gotten back to Othello. I'm trying to go like in order, but there's no real order. Um, but I was a theater major, so I had. I did classical theater for a while. So like I have a history of reading Shakespeare and it's definitely hard. Like some of them I'm like, I'm really just zipping through this because I'm not into it. <laughs> but act four of Othello is in, in it's there. This, there's a scene in act four between Amelia and Desdemona or maybe that's act five where they're getting ready. We're getting ready for her to like die. Spoiler alert, I guess, if you don't know Othello, but um, it's so good. It's such a good scene. It makes me cry. Did you read Richard the Third? Yeah, I was in Richard the Third a few times in college. It's incredible. I know I played Queen Margaret, the old 
evil queen. Okay. The best part in the play. I did it in college and then I did it out in California at this Shakespeare company that I was working with for the summer. And I freaking love Richard the third. I'm obsessed with that. I mean, that's, that's the one I've like, I should have, I should have stopped reading that so many times Mm. and finished Othello, you know? Um, but yeah, Richard the third is, when Caleb, you know, Caliban is like, you know, you taught, yeah, yeah, or, or Midsummer's Night Dream, you know, yeah. like you taught, me, you taught me your language, and what's my profit on it that I know how to curse? Like that shit, like gets me in my heart, you know. Yeah. Oh my god, you have to finish it though. You have to go back when you're ready though, because it it gets so good. The like second half, the back half, three, four, act three, four, and five are just like juicy and so good and the women are talking about you know if it's their fault that they're abused because of the men that they've chosen to be with like the shit just gets it's like so layered it's so good Ugh. i'm gonna do it you have to do it you have to i'm gonna do it i'm in the house so i gotta do it. yeah read it out loud that always helps me yeah that's what i was trying to do for the first you know the first first what eight ten pages out loud and and yeah, and then I think pandemic got us, yeah. and then we just didn't finish. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. Okay, what's a book that is like your problematic favorite? Uh, I got so many. <laughs> Ooh, that's like one of the questions you just don't even want to be honest about. Yeah. I'm a teacher, right? Okay. So I'm saying all that to say, like, I teach a lot of books that are problematic, so we can talk about the problematic nature of the book and the parts of the nation that shaped the book. So there's this book by Iceberg Slim called Pimp, which is the probably the most problematic, one of the most problematic books ever created. And, um, but it's also like such a historical document. You know, it's really interesting too, when you ask people about fucked up books and then they start trying to rationalize why it's not fucked up. It's just fucked up. Right. It's just fucked right. up. It's just a fucked up book. It's called Pimp. I've had to review somebody who wrote uh, a review of it and um, it, it's a fucked up book, but, but, and, and it's like, it, there's so many typos in the book. <laughs> it's so like, not, it's like, it's like, I don't think it got edited once, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and I, I'm just somebody who likes ignorant shit. Like, so like it, it brings me pleasure, but mm. it's a, it's a horrifying book. Okay. I love that. My go-to is always Gone with the Wind. I fucking love Gone with the Wind. I know that shit is so fucked up, but I ride hard for Gone with the Wind and I can't defend myself in any way except for to say that I love it and I'm sorry that it's racist and slavery was bad, but like Scarlett O'Hara is my favorite. So where are you at now with with the whole... I'm mad about it. I think that's stupid. You're not helping any black people by taking Gone with the Wind down. Like that doesn't actually help black people. You know, like that's just a way for you to feel better about yourself. Like if you want to help black people, I don't know, take some money, HBO Max and donate it somewhere. Like start start a program where people can actually have movies that they've written be created. Like taking down Gone with the Wind is the dumbest shit ever. Like my life is not better because of that in any way. And lucky for me, I own the four disc DVD anniversary set so I can watch it whenever I want. Okay. Because I love Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I just, I don't really quite get it. Like, I understand that the book and the movie are racist. Like, I fully understand that. Like, there's no such thing as, like, this happy slave and, like, the shit is bad. But I also don't, I guess I don't know what people want it to be. You know, like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. 
I understand that it's racist and it's bad, but I guess I don't understand what people were expecting or hoping that it would be. Like, did they think it was going to be 12 years a slave? Like, I don't know. Right. And even that has like the white savior guy. Like, I don't know. Like, it's the response to it. It's like what I was saying about between the world and me. I think sometimes I think I think people are, are so mad that it's so lauded. And they think it's lauded uncritically, as it was lauded uncritically. Sure. So instead of fucking like talking about the critics and like that like uncritical lauding, like they're like, let's take the book out, you know? Yeah. Um that's what I think. That's what I think. Yeah. That's what I think. I and 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 I do think there's like this distrust of like teachers, you know, ultimately. Like, Cause when you take books out of when you just take books out like that. You have to you have to also distrust that teach because there's a way to teach that shit right. that could be like completely dripping in like black liberatory everything. Right. Like and I love to teach fucked up books through like the lens of like, you know, liberation. But I don't think people trust that that's happening because mm. it's probably not happening. Right. Right. I feel that. I mean, like, I don't think that I would want to be taught Gone with the Wind in school. But like. Right. I I right. loved Gone with the Wind. My dad and I loved it. We used to watch it together. And my yeah. dad, you know, would be like 85 this year. So he's like an old school black dude from Louisiana. And like, he loved it. And I, I think he and I both know that like, that shit was racist. But also like, Rhett Butler was such a scoundrel, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> we could talk about how old black people love that racist shit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, my grandmother is 90, about to be 92. 9192 and she loved going with the wind. She loved fucking Dukes of Hazard, fam. Yeah. Like you know like I and 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 I don't want to just write them off as like, "Oh, they were swimming in, you know, anti-blackness." I mean, maybe, but there's something else there that I think I would really love to get older black people's voices on. But and she's a fucking race woman, right? She always wants the right. black character on Wheel of Fortune, Price is Right yeah. to win. She wants black people to win and everything. But there's something about Gunsmoke, Gone with the Wind, um, what the fucking Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Those are the shits that she fucking like Barney Fife was Andy Griffin. She yeah. loved that white shit. My dad was the um, same. I wonder if it also has to do with like, at least in the case of Gone with the Wind, I do feel like Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler are kind of black. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they kind of embody like some like black shit like i don't there's you know like the way the the confidence and the swagger and kind of the like i'm not doing shit for nobody like some of that stuff is like feels super black to me and i think maybe that's some of it same with dukes of hazard like yes it functions in a super racist space and yes like the time and the place and you know slapping like the prissy is like not a great look scarlet but also there's something about you know rolling up to this jail and being like i i'm wearing a dress made out of curtains and i'm gonna make this shit work and i'm gonna get what i want and like you know so maybe there's something in it that like they recognize as as black in a way i think that would i mean i think people would push back against that shit but fuck it i believe i you know when morrison talks and like playing in the dark about these africanisms that make their way into this you know, seemingly white shit. Like I, I, I just know that that shit is true. It's like wrestling. We used to watch wrestling growing up. My, my, me and my god, my my uh, my godmother, and she loved the black wrestlers more than any of them. But then she also loved the white wrestlers who were mimicking the black wrestlers. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, love Ric Flair because Ric Flair came into the ring with this fucking 
you know, <laughs> studded out robe talking about all the fucking Cadillacs he had. Right. And she could see the performance of right. it. But I think sometimes black people love black performance, regardless of who's doing it. Now, I think we need to critique that, but we need, we need to also accept that shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. We're, oh my God. We're so out of time right now, but like, I can't stop talking to you. Okay. Let me do like one. Let me just do the last one and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, okay. So the last one, we always end with this one. What's the book that you would require the current president of the United States to read? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> breathe okay that's a perfect segue. because because I, I i think it's a book i think that book would, would melt him mm. and and i would like for him to be melted mm. because i think we don't talk about him as like a failed parent mm. enough wow like talk about him as a failed everything else but fuck it like the dude is not just a failed businessman a failed president a failed husband he's a failed fucking parent yeah. and and if and, and if a black mother or a black father was was a was a parent to baron the way this dude appears to be a parent all people will be talking about is like what a failed fucking parent he is and you know look at his children i'm sorry like i think failed parents need to read books by people who are trying to be fucking like liberatory loving parents mm. i think that book would melt hopefully by page three the motherfucker would just be melted right so i would i would suggest breathe that's yeah. so good okay we're gonna get out of here um when kiasa is back we're gonna be discussing breathe by imani perry in detail but kiasa thank you so much for this this was wonderful thank you thank you tracy for making time for all of us and for me today i appreciate it yay and we will see you guys in the stacks Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to KSA for being our guest. KSA will be back on July 29th to discuss Breathe by Imani Perry for the Stacks Book Club. Find everything we discussed today in the link in the show notes. And for more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and support the show, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. If you're interested in getting your book recommendation read on air, send us an email to askingthestacks at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>